The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, would you steady our hearts and sharpen our affections? Would you still our minds and focus our thoughts? Would you allow us to hear your voice now, Father? Your word is more precious than gold. It is sweeter than honey. It's to be desired more than anything else this world could hold before us. So Father, we ask that you would speak to us now, but that you would give us ears to hear your voice. Hearts to believe and trust what you have said. Pray that you would allow me not to say one word that is untrue or unhelpful, you would help these people to hear rightly. Father, it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So any of you that have ever done any level of investing, any level of stock trading, and it's an interesting time we live in where you can pull these kind of things up on your computer. You can invest your own money, and I'm sure many of you have. And you probably recognize, or if you haven't recognized, you will soon enough that if you zoom in too closely on any given stock, that can really throw you off. If, if, if you zoom in too closely and, and you look at a stock at let's say an hour by hour chart or a day or maybe even a week chart, what you'll find is that you're in for a real roller coaster. The ups and the downs, they just seem to be coming at you in, in real time and you'll panic sometimes and make some faulty decisions. But if you'll pull back, if you look at things from the proper scale and on the proper time horizon, all of a sudden you realize all those little movements didn't amount to a whole lot. I find the same thing to be true with regards to sports. When I was a younger man and playing sports, Whenever we wanted to watch film, game film or practice film or something like that, the most instructive film we could watch was usually that that was taken from up in the press box or up in a tower of some sort. So you can put a, you can put a camera on a player's helmet and that offers some real drama. It's real dramatic and exciting to view things right there from field level, but it's not very instructive. It doesn't give you a very good view of everything that's going on. What I find here in Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that he is trying to make sure that we look at things on the proper timeline and from the proper perspective. As I've told you often, he is sweeping the saints there in Ephesus and us along with them up into the heavenly places. He's giving us a, a heavenly perspective of the Christian life and of all of redemption. He's allowing us to look at things not just from a heavenly perspective, but from an eternal perspective. He's showing us the full timeline of what God began in eternity past and what he's doing that carries us forward into eternity future. Because the reality is that life is 
It's so in our face, even for the Christian. Life is so loud and so up close and personal, personal and everything, it seems to be changing so rapidly. And we know that we have a very real enemy. The evil one, he wants us to be caught up in the emotions of the moment. The evil one, he wants us reacting instead of resting. The evil one, he wants us to be moving along with the activities of himself and the flesh and the world. Instead of resting in the hope and the accomplished work of Christ Jesus, our Lord. In short, the devil wants us to remain like little children. Swept up and moved to and fro by the emotion and the winds and the waves of everything going on around us. And if that was true of the saints in Ephesus some 2,000 years ago, how much more true is it of us today? In a world where we get our information in real time, men don't wait until the 6 o'clock news to find out what's been going on around them. You don't have to wait until the morning to get your morning newspaper. I don't know if anybody actually even does that anymore. It's with the flip of a finger, immediate. We've been trained that the whole world operates on a 15-minute life cycle. That everything happens right here, and you've got to react. If you don't react quickly enough, you're going to miss out. If you don't react quickly enough, you're going to be left behind. And so the whole world around us is training us to look like this. And I'll be honest with you, it's infiltrated the church. Because of social media, because of the loud noise all around us that we sometimes bring with us inside the church, what I'll find is that I talk to people oftentimes about church history. I've come to understand that most Southern Baptists believe that church history began in 1950. Billy Graham founded the church, right? Isn't that the way that it goes? We have such a small horizon and and, and, and we get so caught up in the fads of the moment. And we say we're not like the world. We have, we've got different priorities. We've got, we've got a different perspective on things around us. But we don't always live like it. But if you come to Scripture and you think about what we're told to be like over and over and over again. The way that Scripture talks about the Christian life. Never a sprint. Always a race. The kind of race that the author of Hebrews says requires endurance. Or where we're called to fix our eyes. Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us that we're to fix our eyes on heavenly things? We're to keep our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our hopes and our treasures in heaven and off of the earth. We're called to be a people that look at things from a very different perspective. Now, I realize that much of this, if I'm not careful, much of this talking about not getting swept up in the emotions of the moment and not looking at things in a 15-minute news cycle, that much of this can make me just sound like a grumpy old man. That much of this can just sound a lot like the same kind of words that you'd hear coming from any secular conservative out there. But I speak to you very differently. Because my point in all this is that we as Christians very literally are above all of that. All of it. All the stuff that you see happening around you right now, all the stuff that you see clamoring for your attention, all the stuff that you see working to suck you into the emotions of the now, literally, that's a word that's overused, by the way, I get that. You know those people that everything is literal? The words you've said to me, you've literally murdered me. I don't think I have. But if we're to believe what scripture says, then you are literally above it. Not that the earthly things don't matter. 
Not the immediate things don't matter. How many times have I told you there are no meaningless moments? Every single moment and every single thing and every single, single ounce of suffering that comes to us in this lifetime, it all matters. But the difference between us and the world is we know that our Heavenly Father controls it all. But the question is, do you trust Him with it? He has promised in His Word that He is working all things together for our good. That's not just our collective good, that's your good as His child. Individually, He's working for your good in all things. So it's not that these little things that are happening all around us, or the big things that are happening all around us, it's not that they don't matter. They matter more than we could ever imagine. But it's that the one that is controlling them is working for us, for our good, in all moments. So the question is, do you believe that? Do you trust him? Do you trust the words that we've been reading over and over again here in Ephesians chapter 2, that he has raised us up with Christ Jesus and seated us even now in heavenly places? Do you believe it? It's one thing to say we believe it. It's another thing to live in light of it. And the reality is that the amount of anxiety I find in my life proves I might believe it here. But my heart portrays a very different picture. Because I too can get swept up into FOMO. Fear of missing out if I don't react to whatever it is that's right in front of me right at this moment. Believing that I've got to answer Every argument that comes before me, I've got to answer every insult that is hurled at me. I've got to answer every way in which I think the world is going to hell. But I've been set free from that. As a Christian, as a child of the one who controls it all, I've been set free. I don't have to live a million miles an hour with my hair on fire. I don't have to take up an offense at everything that I think doesn't match up with my picture of what this world is meant to look like. I've been set free. I've come to realize that when the Lord's brother says that this life is but a vapor, that's not a threat and it's not meant to be a thing that induces panic and anxiety. We read it like that. Life is but a vapor, so I better get what I can while the getting's good. That's not what he says. What he's trying to do is draw our eyes off of the immediate, off of the earthly, and onto the eternal, and onto the spiritual, and onto the heavenly. So that's at least in part why I'm not rushing through this book. Look, there's going to be portions of this. We're not always going to move at this pace through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But have you ever been in a hot air balloon before? Or, or just up, up somewhere. Maybe even just in an airplane. You ever notice how everything below you seems to move really, really slowly? Things get quiet and they get still and they get calm real quick. So that every Sunday morning as we come into this place to steal the words of R.C. Sproul, we cross over that threshold from the secular to the sacred. I'm going to rest here for a little bit. Because God's still got some things to say to us. Trusting that he's setting the pace. He'll tell us when there needs to be some urgency. He'll tell us when we need to pack up and move on. Isn't that what happened in the wilderness with the people? It was whenever the spirit picked up and moved that they knew it was time to take up the camp and follow. So, as we come back to Ephesians chapter 2, I ask you just to remember the perspective that God is calling us to here. 
Timelines don't get any longer than eternity. Perspectives don't get any higher than heaven. And so Paul is taking us there. And you remember back in chapter one, the way that he has done this. He has done this by taking us to the plans and the purposes and the predestining work of God before the foundation of the world. And then he took us 2,000 years ago to the redeeming work of Christ Jesus as the Son came to accomplish that that the Father had planned. And he talked to us about the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, reminding us that this work of redemption, it's not just the work of one member of the Godhead, it's the whole trinity of God. The triune God of the universe working for our good, meant to bring us comfort. And then as we came to chapter 2, he talked to us about where we were when this redemption met us, dead in sins and trespasses. Unreceptive. Incapable of responding even to the offer of salvation in Christ Jesus. So in love with our sins, so in love with the, day, the ways of the world, we couldn't force ourselves to love Christ Jesus. Man loves what he loves. You like what you like. You can't change your desires. You can't change your affections. You need a new heart. And that's the picture that Paul was painting for us here. And it's exactly at that point that we see these beautiful words, but God. When we were dead in sins, at enmity with God, it was there that he met us. Scripture says that he made us alive. He gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and the will to turn from our sin and trust in Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, as I told you then, that's not new faculties or new abilities. These are new desires, new devotions given to us by God. Now, we've already talked about what drives this. What is the impetus behind this? What is the true cause behind all of this that God has done? And scripture makes very clear that it's God's character. It's his nature. It's his mercy. It's something in God that has caused him to love us, to work in us like this. That we rest our hopes not on anything within us, but wholly and completely on the nature and the purposes and promises of God. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, next week, I told you we're going to pick up some steam. Actually, next week, we're going to start picking up some steam and taking bigger chunks of this together because that's the way Paul lays out the argument. But next week, we're going to talk about what is the instrument through which we receive this redemption? Faith, of course, is the answer. There is no salvation apart from faith in Christ Jesus as Lord and that God doesn't do the believing for us. You must believe. You must repent. But before we get there, sandwich somewhere between the two, Somewhere between the true cause of what he has done and the instrument through which he does the thing, we see him now telling us to what end. What was his goal in doing all this? What was his goal in predestining us before the foundation of the world? What was his goal in redeeming us in Christ Jesus? What was his goal in setting us apart as holy? What was his goal in raising us to life and giving us, making us into something that's altogether new? What was his goal in seating us in heavenly places? What was his goal? What was God's purpose in all of this? That's the answer that Paul is, or that's the question that Paul is going to give us an answer to this morning here in verse 7. I ask you to return to your feet, please. We return to Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, reading all the way through verse 10. This is the holy and inerrant, infallible, sufficient, Authoritative word of God. But you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All God's people said, Amen. You may be saved. So surely you can almost recite these words by memory now but God I pray you've not lost your sense of wonder at those two words but God but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with Christ for by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see those words there, the beginning of chapter, of verse 7, so that. This is a statement of purpose. That's basic grammar. It's a thing that many of us lose when we come to the scriptures. Many of us, I think, think that if we don't have some, some background, if we haven't spent years studying hermeneutics, or maybe if we don't have some in-depth understanding of Greek that we can't really ever be a student of the Bible. We can't really understand what's meaning to be said here. And so we're relying upon a preacher or a teacher or a pastor somewhere to tell us what the word says. Beloved, I tell you, that's bunk. But what so many people do is they come to the scripture and they put their minds on the shelf and they come with nothing but emotion. Or they come with nothing but tradition. They come to passages that are difficult some man's already told them what to believe. They don't want to do the hard work, and so they just gloss over it. But if we would come to it and just read it like we read anything else. No, it's not like anything else. It's the breathed out word of God. But the God of the universe has chosen to speak to us using grammar, using language, using the rules of grammar and language. And so whenever we come to a passage and it tells us why God does something, our ears ought to perk up and say, maybe this is why he's done it. We don't get to then insert our own ideas as to why God has done something. And so often I'll sit with men and they'll say, I don't believe what you teach. Okay, no worries. Here's some words that God said. What do you do with them? You got to do something with them. And the things we got to do with them are bound by grammar. And so he's saying here, so that. This is the purpose. This is why I've done it. So that the whole reason why I brought you from death to life, why I raised you up to a new life, why I seated you in the heavenly places, it's so that I can do something in the coming ages. You see that? So that in the coming ages, and we've seen that language before, even here in his letter to the Ephesians. You remember back the chapter before, Ephesians 1.19. He says that according to the working of his great might, he's talking about the greatness of God's power. 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. So it's clear that when Paul is speaking at this moment about the age to come, he's pointing forward to something that's beyond the age in which we live. It's the future eschaton. It's the return of Christ Jesus saying that Christ Jesus reigns. He reigns right now. Whether you bend your knee to him or not, Christ Jesus reigns right now. And in the age to come, he'll reign for all eternity. But that's not what Paul says in this instance. Do you notice it? He doesn't say the age to come here. He says the coming ages. He's speaking in plural terms here. So he seems to be talking about a successive period of future ages. Not just one future age, but ages that are coming. It seems as though what he's talking about is all ages beginning at the moment in which this grace comes to you. The moment in which Christ Jesus comes and calls you to life. From that age and in every age forward that this thing is happening. That this purpose of God is coming to pass. A thing from now off into eternity. So in short, I think he's making two things clear to us. Number one, he says that this thing that God is doing, this so that that God is doing, he's begun doing it right now. I think for so many Christians, we're just waiting for death for God to do something good. We live and we speak and we pray and we preach and we read the scriptures as if we're just waiting for the good to come. And right now is just nothing but the misery. We know nothing of God's grace in our life right now, nothing of his kindness in our, in our life right now, nothing of his rule and his reign over his universe right now. We're waiting for the then. And I used to know guys that, you probably knew these, you would, you would go back, right? You'd, 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 you know, you'd go away to college or you'd go get a job or something and you'd go back to your hometown and you would meet those guys and they were always fixing to, they were always fixing to do something, right? They never actually did anything. There's a bunch of fixing to's. I'm, I'm fixing to do this. I'm fixing to do that. But so many of us, we live as though God is a fixing to God. He's fixing to do something later. And because we live with this idea that God is only going to do something in the future, guess how we live? We're fixing to. We're always waiting for the next season in life. And as I was writing this, I have a note here that says, this really speaks to the students. And then as soon as I thought about it, I realized that's not just true of the students. It is true of the students, by the way. You don't get to be fixing to in the Christian life. There's no such thing as baby Christians. You've come to Christ Jesus, you've got a very real enemy that wants to destroy you. So you must suit up with the full armor and go to battle today. But the reality is I know so many adults so many people that we would assume would be spiritually mature and grown-up Christians, and they're always waiting for the next season in life. When the kids grow up, then I'm going to get really involved. Whenever work slows down, then I'm going to get real serious about my study of God's Word. Whenever my wife gets her act together, then all of a sudden I'm going to step up and be the spiritual leader of the household. We're always waiting for the next season in life. We're a bunch of fixing this. Forgetting that the God we serve, he's begun a work in us right now. A work that's guaranteed to come to pass because we're already seated in the heavenly places. But he's working right now. We can look for this grace and this mercy and this kindness. We can see evidence of it right now. But he's also making clear to us not just that this thing, that his purpose is coming and intersecting our life right now, but that it never ends. 
It carries off into eternity, age after age after age of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. I rushed in this morning. Um, I took the girls to Matagorda for just a little short, little short trip. You know, when Annie went to school, I got really sad. I'm still sad. Don't ask me about it. And so anytime that she and her friends say, hey, we'd like to go to the beach for the weekend, I find a way to make that happen. And so we went and I drove back in this morning and I'll, I'll go back and hang out a little bit, a little bit later. But um, I was thinking about the reality that whenever you go on vacation, there's this phenomenon. It's really a sad phenomenon. The reason why when you go on vacation, if at all possible, you need it to be seven days is because if it's a three-day vacation, you're already sad about going home by day two. Right? You never get to enjoy the last two days of your vacation because you know it's coming to an end. So you're always worrying about having to pack up and clean up and the work that's waiting for you back home. And so really anything short of seven days, that's really hard. You don't even get those three or four good days on the front end. Beloved Christians don't live like this. I mean, you can live like that with regards to your vacation if you want, but with regards to the gifts of God, it never runs out. It never ends. The good that he's doing in your life right now, the good that will accelerate from this moment on into eternity, it just keeps going and going and, and going. An eternity of his goodness towards you. We don't know anything like this. We don't know anything like this in our earthly experience other than that the word of God promises it to be true. So the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? The other promise that we're meant to glean from this is the reality that this world is not all that there is. That this world will end. This world as we know it will be consumed by fire and remade into something glorious and beautiful and suited for an eternity of pleasures with God. So the question is, do you live like it? Do you live like this world is passing away? Or do you live like this earth and this time and this opportunity is all that you have and you better get what you can now? All the getting's good. What he's telling us here is this work, this so that, this purpose that God has, he's begun it today, it carries off into eternity, and it never ends. But what is that end? To what end? To what purpose? What is this purpose and everything? This really is the, the, the purpose for everything that we've read, not just here in chapter 2, but going all the way back. What is it, 50 weeks now we've been studying? The purpose now for the last 50 weeks of what Paul has been telling us, it's found right here in verse 7. That ought to catch your attention. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's the purpose. His purpose in election, his purpose in redemption, his purpose in sealing, his purpose in rising, his purpose in seeding, his purpose in bringing dead men to life, his purpose in everything that he has done is so that with the goal that, with the purpose that, he can spend an eternity lavishing his grace upon you in kindness. And it breaks my heart that I'm not as impressed by that as I should be. I've so taken for granted the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God that I make a statement like that and I don't. I should be able to close my Bible and sit down and we should, we should have to send you all home. Worship's over. Go home at some point. Go back to your families. Based on that statement right there alone. That should be enough to propel us for the rest of this life. The realization that the powerful working of God 
That the God whose power knows no end, it has been manifest and exercised and put to work expressly so that he can be gracious and merciful and kind to you forever and ever and ever and ever. And sadly, if somebody walked through the door and told me, hey, you just want a scratch off. Here's 5,000 bucks. I'd be more jacked up about that than I would this promise. This shows you what a child I am. This shows you how immature my palate has gotten. This shows you how little I believe the promises of God. This shows you how little I long for heaven. This shows you how much the things of this world have wrapped themselves around my heart. He's saying here this was his purpose. And we focused on this often, and that's part of why you didn't start wailing and crying and jumping up and down when I said these words. I've drawn your heart to this over and over and over again. I didn't wait for the purpose statement to give you the purpose. All throughout these last few weeks, I've been giving you the purpose, that this is the purpose. But I don't apologize for giving it to you again because it's fundamental. You've got to know the why. You've got to know his aim in this. And so I ask you not to wander off. I ask you to listen clearly. I ask you not to allow your, your mind and your heart to grow weary of this or bored of these kind of promises. The reality is the God of the universe, the creator of all that is, the one who sustains, the one who keeps the, star, the planets in their orbit, the one who named the stars, the one who breathed out the stars, the one who sustains life, the one who made elephants and mountains and everything else that you can see and everything else that you can't see, that that God has devoted himself to being kind to you for all eternity. He says it all over, over and over again throughout chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3 says that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Verse 6 says that by his grace, God has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 8, the riches, riches of his grace have been lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse 11 through 14 talk about the guarantee of our inheritance. Verse 18 talks about the hope to which he has called us. So clearly he's given us these little these little indications all along that this was God's purpose. And he's told us what the driver is. Again, I remind you, what's the driver behind this? It's the character of God. This one who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. You see, the minute we take our eyes off of him and onto ourselves, we'll realize how unworthy we are. The minute we have the wrong perspective and we're living at earthly level and we're looking at this tiny little timeline, we're going to miss this. We're going to say, it doesn't feel as though he's been very kind to me. Doesn't feel as though he's been very merciful and gracious to me. Do you know all the loss I've suffered this year? Do you know all the pain that I've endured this year? He says, let me take you to heaven for a moment. Let me show you the scope and scale of eternity. Let me show you who God is instead of being wrapped up in your own experiences or instead of always looking in a little mirror of your own heart, a mirror you can't even understand, by the way. Let me fix your eyes on that which is unchanging and immovable. Fix your eyes on the character of God. He is one who is immeasurable in the richness of his grace. Do you know what that word means, immeasurable? It means it cannot be measured. I told you you didn't have to be a Greek major. There's too much of it to measure. It's immeasurable because there's no end to it, because it's infinite. Like all of God's perfections, his grace is without measure, beyond measure, without end, infinite. Therefore, he is not miserly or stingy. He didn't, he didn't have to ration out his grace or his goodness or his kindness or his love because there's plenty more where that came from. 
It's never running out. Just as we talked about in chapter 1, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power. And we talked about this. What did I say, Caleb Camp? God never grunts. He doesn't break a sweat. He doesn't strain. His power knows no end. Well, now what we're learning is not only does his power know no end, but his grace never knows no end. You know what this means? He never has to close his eyes. He never has to bite down. He never has to say, okay, well, I really wasn't feeling like being a gracious God today, but I guess I'm going to. There is no end to his grace. It's infinite and immeasurable. But that's not the crazy part. We start with our eyes fixed on God because he is the unchanging one. It is in his nature and his purpose and his plans that we find our hope. That's not the crazy part. That's not what makes this thing the gospel. What makes it the gospel is that he says, toward us. Toward us. The gospel isn't just that Jesus Christ died and rose again. The gospel is that I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. But Jesus Christ now lives in me and the life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what makes it the gospel. That it's toward us. That for me. That's everything. A God whose power knows no end. That's just terror. Even a God whose grace knows no end. That's just a dream. But a God whose power and grace knows no end. Toward me. That's life. That's everything. Toward us. That's the astounding thing that makes this good news. That God would set us apart as saints. That would call us out. Choose to extend this love and mercy and kindness and grace towards us, towards sinners like you and me. That's what it means as we work through the Old Testament and we see the unfolding. We see these various administrations of the covenant of grace over and over and over again. There's this one recurring theme. And what is it? What is the ultimate promise that we see running all throughout the Old Testament and all the way into the New Testament? I will be your God and you will be my people. What does that mean? It means everything I am as God, I am for you and toward you. So that for 18 months, as I sat right here and we talked about the attributes and the nature and the, the, who God is, your heart should have been swelling within you as we talked about the power and the wisdom and the knowledge and the goodness and the might and the reign of God. Don't you? If you had an uncle... If you had a third cousin that was president of the United States, you'd never shut up about it. Seven degrees from Kevin Bacon, and I'm telling people about something. Your father rules and reigns without end, and everything that he does, he does for your good. Why would I get caught up in the silly little ins and outs of what's happening all around me? Satan wants you there. He wants you reacting. He wants you answering. 
He wants you in anxiety and in fear and going along with this roller coaster ride. And God says, get your eyes on me, would you? I'm for you. Infinitely for you. Not based on anything in you. Therefore, you can't lose it. You didn't earn it. You can't lose it. I chose you. You didn't choose me. And I don't unchoose. I'm for you. Again, I say based on nothing within us. That's what makes it grace. That's why he's talking about grace here. He's not talking about wages. He's not talking about something that God owes us. He's talking about grace. Completely unmerited. And unmerited isn't really, it's demerited. You realize this. It's not just that we're not the best people. You're the worst. I'll lump myself in there too. Enemies of God. Yet while we were still enemies, he came to us like this. It was grace. It wasn't just grace. It had to be in Christ Jesus. It could only come to us in this way. You recognize that Jesus wasn't just a preacher of God's grace. He wasn't just an errand boy or a messenger that came to give us God's grace. He is that grace. It's only in him. It's only in him as we hide in him like a cleft in a rock or like a cave or like an ark. It's only as we are hidden in Christ that we are spared from the wrath of God, saved from God, by God, in God. But it's only there that you receive any of this grace. The grace is Christ Jesus coming, not just for us, but to us. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace, I leave with you. Ephesians 2.14 says that he himself is our peace. John 10, he says, I've come to give you eternal life. John 11, he says, I am that life. John 6, he says, I've come to give you true bread from heaven. He goes on to say, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You don't come to Christ Jesus and say, Christ, you got some of that grace stuff back there somewhere? You got some of that eternal life I've heard about? You come in and you say, you are the life. You're, every, you're everything that's been promised to us. It's in Christ Jesus. But then when we consider all that it cost to give that to us, all that we've spent the last, what are we, 10 days or whatever, studying, at least the last week, studying all throughout Holy Week, the passion story. The coming of the Son of God condescending to become man and lay down his life. Incredible cost. So we say that God's grace is immeasurable. He, the riches of his grace, immeasurable. It would be easy to say, well, then it cost him nothing to give him to us. No, no, no. But the problem is you're unworthy and I'm unworthy. And, and Satan thought that he, he had God hemmed up some way. There's no way you can be kind to these people because they're all a bunch of sinners. Your law demands their destruction. Your own word demands, your nature demands their des destruction. You're a holy God. They're an unholy people. How can you extend any goodness towards them? It took Christ Jesus. So in order to extend to us any modicum of his grace and his mercy and his kindness, despite the fact that he had an unending storehouse, in order to extend it towards us, cost him the life of his son. So God wants to make sure that we know I've done all of this for the purpose. 
so that in the coming ages I may extend this grace and kindness towards you. And we see the other reason why it takes an eternity. If, it's, if God is infinite and immeasurable and there is no end to the riches of his grace and his determination according to his character and his plans and his purposes is that he's going to pour that into the life of finite beings, how long do you reckon it's going to take? Forever. It's part of why heaven is eternal. Forever. There's no end to it. That's why heaven won't be bored. Children, listen to me. Heaven's not going to be boring. When I... When I was a kid, what did I think heaven was? I wanted an ice cream cone, and boom, an ice cream cone. I wanted to play baseball, and boom, there was baseball. I made heaven all about me. I was the center of heaven. And then I matured, and what was heaven then? Heaven was all about the worship of God. But if I'm honest, I became bored with the thought of that. Just a never-ending worship service? That didn't really do much for me. But then eventually I came to study the scriptures and I recognized that what he said is, no, eternity is age after age after age after age of the God of the universe giving himself over more and more and more to me. And my capacity just grows. My capacity to receive and to understand and to know him just grows for all eternity without end. That's the promise that he's making here. I've done this all, all that I've done in redemption, I've done so that I can spend eternity Pouring my infinite goodness and grace into your life. This kindness that comes only in Christ Jesus. Even in heaven, it's still of grace. Even in heaven, it's still in Christ. There's never a moment when you're in heaven and you get it twisted and thinking, yeah, I deserve this. Yes, I have earned this. It is always in the worship of the lamb who was slain. The one who purchased your place at the table. The one who won you from slavery. It is always in worship of him because he's the one that bought the place. It's only in him that this grace comes. What God is saying here in verse 7 is, this is my purpose in everything that I've just said. But, if you've paid any attention over the last year, if you've paid any attention to anything that we studied in chapter 1, if you've paid any attention to anything that I've ever said to you for that matter, and I came to you and I said, okay, I just pick a random person, any one of you, and said, hey, Scott, what do you reckon God's purpose was in redeeming me? What's his ultimate goal? What's his ultimate aim? Without doubt, you would say the same as everything, his own glory. It's the reason why God does everything that he does. It's for the sake of his own glory. And you would answer rightly. God's ultimate passion, his ultimate purpose, his greatest zeal is for the glory of his own name. That's why he created the world. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's why he created his people. He speaks in Isaiah 43.7 about those who are called by his name, whom he created for his own glory. That's why he called his people out of slavery. Ezekiel 20, verse 9, for the sake of my name, I called them out of Egypt. It's why he didn't destroy his people in their sin. Isaiah 48, 9, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you and I will not cut you off. My glory, I will not give to another. It's the same reason that he promised that he would do all that he does in the new covenant. Or excuse me, in the, yeah, the new covenant. The, the giving of himself so that we might be cleansed, so we might have a new spirit, so we might have our heart replaced. What does he say is the purpose behind that in Ezekiel 36? 
It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I will vindicate the holiness of my name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. It's the reason he's done everything that he's done. Unless you think this was just Old Testament God, look again in chapter 1. How does he conclude each one of those sections when he talks about the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit? Well, in verse 6, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So the question we should be asking then is, did Paul just lose the plot here? Did Paul Paul just get wrapped up in some man-centered sermon here by taking people's eyes off of the glory of God as his primary aim in all things and moving them on to themselves, moving them on to the things that God had promised to do do for them? Do you feel that tension? You see, whenever you come into a church like ours and we make place such an emphasis on the glory of God, and I pray that you know that by now, I sense it in my conversations with you people, you have a zeal for the glory of God. A zeal which grows by the day. But you at the same time never give me any indication or the world any indication that you think that being zealous for the glory of God in any way diminishes the good that he desires to do for you. Now, to somebody that's never tasted that, that's completely foreign. Somebody that's never tasted that, they hear those verses that I just read, and they believe God to be a megalomaniac. But I point to you, even in this verse, even in verse 7, where he's talking about his determination that he will spend all eternity doing us good, I point out to you that those two twin truths continue to run through the whole thing. Look at verse 7 again. So that in the coming ages, he might, what's the next word? Show. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Show means to demonstrate. Show means to make known. Beloved, do you understand that God's ultimate purpose in creation isn't just to be glorious? It's to make that glory known that we might see and revel and worship, making that glory known that it might resound to his unending praise. Calvin once said that the universe is the theater for God's glory. That everything that he has created and that everything that he has done all throughout redemptive history, this is a giant stage for his showing forth of his own glory. Going back to that verse that I read in, in Psalm 19.1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, what is the glory of God? We've talked about this often. The glory of God is the sum of His perfections. The whole of who God is. It's almost an impossible thing to define. It's like beautiful or majestic. What is God's glory? It's the whole of who He is. And all that He is is wonderful. And infinite. And it's saying here that his desire is to make these things known. He's already made them known in his creation. In all that he's made. The heavens declare the glory. You can look up at the sky and see something of God's glory. Learn something about him. He's made something of himself known. His glory known in writing his law upon the hearts of men. But also in the way that he interacts with his men. He had a desire that his holiness might be known. 
that the glory of his holiness might be known. And so he flooded the earth because of the sins of men, because the desires of their hearts were only continually wicked. We get to Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans 9.22 says that he has a desire that he might show his power. So what does he do? He raises up Pharaoh. He says, for this very purpose, I have put you in this place that my power might be known. Not only that, but he looks to his people and he says, I have a desire to make known the riches of my glory for vessels of mercy. God says, I have a desire not just to be the infinitely glorious one. Not just to be infinitely gracious or infinitely merciful or infinitely just or infinitely holy. I have a desire that you may know this, that I may show it forth, that I may demonstrate it. So you see how these things go hand in hand. This is a showing forth with the desire that he might be known and praised. Isaiah 6 says the whole earth is filled with God's glory. It is. There's nowhere in all creation that we can escape from the glory of God. There's nowhere in all creation that God's glory, glory cannot be seen. But because of sin, because of man's constant desire to suppress that truth, his glory is not always praised. It is not always acknowledged. That's why when we find these passages in the scripture pointing forward to the end of times, when Christ Jesus returns and makes all things new, we find words like Habakkuk 2.14 where he says the whole earth will be filled, not just filled with the glory of God, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's his aim. That's his goal. That's his purpose in redemption, the showing forth of that glory. Not just on some broad scale, but individually in each one of the lives of his saints. Paul seems to know this. 1 Timothy 1.15, he says... This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. See, people can often, as we talk about election or some of these difficult doctrines, people can say, well, you're telling me that God just saved people for no purpose? No, no, no. He's got a purpose. He doesn't always reveal that purpose to us, but Paul seems to get the purpose right here. He says, I was the chief of the sinners. I was the foremost of the sinners. And what does he say here? But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Why did God choose me? To display. It's the same word that we're seeing here in Ephesians 2, 7. To display, to show his perfect patience. He wanted to make his patience known, and so he chose me of all people. The chief of the sinners. Ephesians 3.8. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone, everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, shown, displayed to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You see the pattern? He's saving individuals to show forth his grace and his mercy and his patience and his goodness. He's calling the church and gathering us together, extending this grace and this mercy and this goodness to us to preach something to those rulers and authorities. What's God's purpose in this? To lavish you with grace for all eternity. What's his purpose in this? To show his nature, to express his glory, to increase his praise. Do you see how they work together? I'm going to take you to one more passage. Turn to 1 Peter. We'll finish here. First Peter 1. Let me just go ahead and give you a homework assignment. Because I'm not going to have time to touch on all this the way I'd like. 
Go home and read 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12 today, and you will see so much of the same pattern of what Paul is talking about here in this portion of, the, of Ephesians coming through. I'll move quickly. 1 Peter 1, I'll begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's saying, I've got a treasure for you that never goes away. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's unfading. It's undefiling. It's not going anywhere. Now, anticipating that the people might read that and get a little bit anxious. Okay, you've got this treasure, this inheritance. It's not going anywhere. But how can I be sure I'm going to get there to receive it? Well, the answer is you. He's talking to the reader. He's talking to the saint who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, how am I going to be sure that you're going to get there to receive it? I'm guarding you through faith. I'm guarding your treasure and I'm guarding you and I'm making sure that you're going to meet. I'm making sure that you're going to receive it. And then he goes on to talk about, I'm going to, I'll skip verse 6 through 9 here. But he goes on to talk about the reality that there's going to be trials and there's going to be tribulation and there's going to be suffering and there's going to be pain in this world. And he's saying, look, you endure these things for a little while because you know that this promise is true. You know that you will receive this salvation, salvation of your souls. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So these men, as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit and they're writing the words of Christ, they're pointing forward to a grace that we have come to receive. They don't know everything that they're writing about. As Isaiah is sitting there and he's pinning the very words that the Ethiopian eunuch would say, I don't know who he's writing about. Is he writing about himself or is he writing about another? We know he's writing about Christ Jesus. He doesn't know Christ Jesus. He's before the days of Christ. So he's writing. He's like, God, I don't even know what I've written here fully. I see some shadows. I see some pictures. I see some hints. And I'm trusting in your promises to be true. But you recognize now while Christ Jesus says how blessed we are to stand on this side of the cross and see the full revelation of this grace. To see the fulfillment of everything that these prophets had written about. It's saying here that they had inquired because they wanted to know. Just the hints and the shadows that they saw, it caused their hearts to leap and they longed to look forward and to see the coming grace that God had promised. Not knowing, not fully recognizing the way that it was going to come. But here's where it gets good. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. He's saying the apostles have come. The Holy Spirit has come. They've preached this good news to you. You now know. You now know things into which angels long to look. The things that the Old Testament prophets were writing about pointing forward to the grace that was to come in Christ Jesus. The things which the apostles have preached to us under the power of the Holy Spirit today. The things that we ourselves see, the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are things into which holy angels longed to look. The word for look there is stooped. Do you remember that from last week? As we're talking about Mary, as we're talking about the Apostle John, they both come to the grave. And what does it say that they did? 
They stooped down to look. They were looking for Christ Jesus. And now we've got the Apostle Peter saying the same thing about angels from heaven. These angels from heaven standing out on the balcony and they're stooping. They're longing. They're looking down to see something. Not that God has restricted them from seeing it because they know nothing about it. These angels know nothing experientially about this grace that we have received. Because when angels sinned, what happened? They were cast down with no forgiveness. These holy angels have never known this kind of grace and forgiveness of God. And so they're standing there in heaven and they're looking down upon the earth and they see Christ Jesus come. Why is my Lord left? Why is my master left? Why is my king left? Oh, he's going to give his life. Why would he give his life for such puny creatures as that? Such rebels as that? Why would he give his life for unworthy people as that? Oh, he's raised again. So he can send his spirit and pour his grace into them. And they're filled with awe and wonder and worship at what Christ has done in our life. So they're standing on the parapets of heaven looking down to earth and their worship goes up. So when the scripture says that the angels in heaven rejoice over the salvation, the repentance of just one sinner. Yes, of course, this is a godlike love for the sinner. But more than this, this is admiration for their king. I've been telling you for the last year or so, Christian, you're a miracle. But beloved, what scripture is also telling you is that you are a trophy. You're a trophy of God's grace. So when you see God there with Satan and he says, have you considered my servant Job? Saying, have you considered what I did? He's not saying, look at this awesome Job guy. He's saying, have you considered what I did in this guy? Beloved, the thought that he might be doing that today. Have you looked at First Baptist Church of Crosby? Have you looked at the work that I've done there, the grace that I've extended there, the mercy that I've extended there, the love and the kindness that I've begun there that's going to carry off into all eternity? His angels are praising God because of the work he's done in you. The salvation. What a Savior. Father God, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy and your kindness. We thank you that you have not left us dead in our sins, that you have not given us what we deserve. We thank you, Father, that you saw fit to display your glory, not just in the destruction of sinners, but in the salvation of saints. And Father, we confess our complete demerit of such a thing. So we thank you. We ask that you would help us to live in light of that. To live holy lives that will bring you glory. It would be a light shining for you in a dark world. Father, we love you. We trust you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.